0: When we started the organization, I really wanted to be the Newt Gingrich of public education. I really thought that it wasn't a bad idea that we could cut people off at the knees for public education and our kids. We were going to do it nicely, but at the same time, in order to counter hardball, you really need to play hardball.
1: On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all... What goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this episode of 80-Proof Politics. I'm your host, Bill Shute. Today we're broadcasting from the Hamilton at 14th and F Northwest, just a block from the Treasury Department. And for those of us who've been around long enough in D.C., you'll remember this space as the flagship Garfinkel's Department Store and for just over a decade, really one of the last brick-and-mortar bookstores when Borders took over the space. But if you had spent any time in either of those locations, you can get a sense for just how massive this property is. Clyde's Group opened up this restaurant in 2011, and don't let the massive scale of it dissuade you from coming at all, because the attention to detail they put into the decor, the artwork, And the the great spin on traditional American fare is wonderful. Plus, they've got a fantastic sushi chef, and I highly recommend trying out their sushi sometime. They can have about 700 people seated in this large restaurant. But that's not all the charm, because downstairs in the basement is a live music venue. They do a wonderful job of attracting not only national groups, but a lot of local independent musicians, a lot of eclectic stuff. They host special event parties, like they have a New Year's bash coming up. And then if you're a night owl, they've even got something they can offer you as well because there's a small little place upstairs called The Loft, which is a cozy little bar in the back that they usually get a local musician or two to come and play. And they stay open until about 3 o'clock in the morning on the weekends. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm speaking of The Loft from personal experience. (laughs) But it is very popular. I've talked to a number of people who have been. And I think you would enjoy your time here at the Hamilton. If you do come see John Grace, he's the general manager, and he was so accommodating for us on 80 proof politics today. I just wanted to give him a shout out. Our guest today is Arnie Feggy, who has had a long career here in Washington, has been engaged in the K through twelve space, child welfare, children's health for a number of years, and I'm so thrilled to have you here, Arnie. Cheers and welcome to 80
0: And cheers to you as well, Bill. I'm honored to be with you. So, Artie's currently
1: president of Public Advocacy for Kids, which I believe you started in '98. Is that right? That's correct. about 21 years now. This is a, a outfit of your own making, right? That focuses on communications, policy development, research, grassroots, coalition building. It sounds like you're pulling from a very storied career in town and putting all these elements together in one place. What, what exactly are you doing at Public Advocacy for Kids?
0: Well, not to sound self-serving, but uh, the, the, the organization was uh, was organized by a number of us who really thought that all of these different functions were siloed in organizations. And what we really wanted to do is to create a, an organization that was well-connected. So that you couldn't do policy without research, you couldn't do research without program, you couldn't do program without communications, you do communi- communications without fundraising, and to build a staff, a team that was uh, uh, th- that was not hierarchical, but that was pretty uh, that was pretty much equal, and uh, we didn't want to be single issue uh... there are a lot of single issue organizations in town that lobby and especially around kids we really wanted to be a multi-issue organization and said what the whole policy looks like around the whole child um, uh, and in many cases school districts as well as states and well as the federal government will divide the child by disability by language but they won't put it all together okay. and so our mission is trying to put this all together so we're looking at fifteen to twenty different issues around the child um, and now, and every, every every time we turn around, uh, we have a different issue. For instance, the vaccine issues is coming up. Oh, yes. Which, uh, six months ago, we didn't have the vaccine issue. And so all of a sudden, we have to scramble and figure out how, how to do all of this. And then lastly, we are buoyed uh, by uh, joining uh, uh, a, uh, a lot of coal. We don't have individual members, but we belong to a lot of D.C.-based national coalitions. Coalition of School Climate, the Children's Budget Coalition, the Community Schools Coalition, so that uh, all of us are now building expertise by teaming. If you remember, when you and I both started way back, every all of these organizations were competing for the dollar. Yeah, very much so. And now, with the budget deficit and with the decreasing budget, everybody is really understanding that if you don't work together, you're going to... Uh, you're going to be really separate. So I've got 11, I got 11 staff members, three that work at home, two lobbyists that spend 80% of their time on the Hill, uh, and uh, I spend much of my time on the governance issue, and the, the big challenge these days is how to manage during an era of chaos and disruption. So you talked
1: about working within coalitions. Do you also build coalitions or people coming to you to say, we have an interest in X and you've identified someone who's got a similar interest but it's just different enough that they could work together?
0: Absolutely. One of the ways that we build that and to make sure that our voice is heard is joining the, uh, being part of the executive committee or the planning committee of each one of these coalitions. Uh, we don't join a coalition just to be a, a secondary or a tertiary member. Uh, once we, uh, the board approves joining a coalition, we really want to par- actively participate in the development of, of policy. Um, and as you know, in this era, the policy is changing almost on, on, a, daily, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have been uh, working with, uh, for instance, uh, a group called the Education Policy and Leadership Center in Pennsylvania. It's a state policy group uh, that works with their local school districts that really does instead of federal policy, really does a lot of state policy. The local level seems not to care about policy uh, and one of our objectives... Are they just too immersed in the program? Or they're too immersed in crises and putting out fires. Uh, And uh, their skill is in being professionals, whether they're teachers or they're superintendents, before we Develop policy, or before we entertain any kind of policy, we want to make sure that we have that that policy is research based mm-hmm. and that policy is practice based mm-hmm. uh, rather than top down without any kind of evidence that the policy will work at all. And we have so much, so many examples of top down policies at this level.
1: But you know, there have to be uh, numerous challenges to advocating on behalf of public education. I mean, not only. are you not working with a base of constituents that have resources to do this? You've got such a diverse population when we talk about public education space K through 12 is diverse just within that category. There's so many iterations of K through 12 but it's so much state and local engagement on education. Is part of the big challenge just convincing them from the
0: outset that they have to engage federally on the policy level? But what we see is an increasing, uh, along with the economic inequities, we're seeing those economic inequities, you know, the haves and the have-nots, really playing themselves out in school districts. So we're looking at now the research, the impact Mm -hmm. of uh, state funding. And a lot of it is, a lot of it, as you know, the federal government only contributes about 10% of the K-12 dollars. Uh, And the question then is, is what happens well, we have a group of very affluent kids who have had a lot of opportunity uh, growing up in a world with uh, students that don't have those same opportunities. So we're looking at every and and the economists now, interestingly enough, are saying one of the ways to equalize is to have a universal preschool. Everybody now is convinced that making if you start right, the chances are that you will end right. If you start wrong, and have a uh, and have large groups of students who don't have vocabularies that are that have large vocabulary they're starting out that are starting out behind a lot of the other students in kindergarten they never catch up you're probably never going to catch up yeah. and you may catch up in reading but you don't catch up in math and science because math and science is based upon scaffolding of skills right, right. and by the 5th grade if you don't get it right all of a sudden the kids will lose interest, they will become disengaged and you have uh, huge numbers of of dropouts. The other is that we're really doing a lot of work with community colleges Hmm. so that we're beginning to try to figure out how to do this uh, this K-4T um, so that we're looking at uh, relationships between public health, we're looking at caring, we're looking at education. Uh, it's those kinds of innovations I think, you know, we're, we're sort of looking at in the future. But, and the other issue we face is this, uh, this uh, school of thought that money doesn't make any difference. Mm-hmm. If somehow we can't get the wealth and the poverty issues straight, it's really going to be very, very difficult getting the other issues straight. As you are trying to advance
1: this agenda here in town, It seems like you're fighting with one hand tied behind your back, given the natural constituencies. You don't have the large resources to get in front of policy makers, so you have to stand up on the merits and the data, hence your focus on research-based advocacy and what you're doing, right? Right, exactly. Is that also part of the motivation for getting involved in these larger coalitions? Does that become an increase, uh, an amplifier of what you're trying
0: to accomplish? Uh, precisely. Our governance has changed tremendously. When we started out, we, we would do long-range plans and everything followed in a line. You do your you do your uh, mission statement and then the long-range plan, then you do the objective, you sit down with your staff and do the job descriptions, and there is no long-term in this current policy environment uh, either at the federal level or at the state level. It's all organic. So um, what we because there are so many issues and uh, I mean there are issues that and if you know I can't hire staff who think in black and white because if they think in black and white and today we've developed a plan for next week and we're gonna we're going to make these kinds of visitations and by the way this is going to be our message and all of a sudden this thing called public charge comes out that we never thought about the issue of Puerto Rican recovery hadn't occurred Uh, FEMA is a big issue Houston still has not recovered from the uh, the water a year ago, let alone the water over the last couple of months, the separation of families at the border. I mean, there's all these are new issues we never planned on a year ago. And and now we've got to go back, re-scramble, regroup, and figure out how it is that we respond so that we get ahead of the both the communication and the policy game. And so we have to rely on other coalitions who have the expertise. We join. Uh, there are some coalitions we lead, uh, the, um, the uh, Title I coalition, there are other coalitions that, that we have expertise in, and I want my staff, we we're talking about students going into policy, I, I want each of my staff members, because information is power, that when, if they leave and go to another job, I want them to know the chapter and verse of every, every education, or at least one education bill it's a thousand pages long, and I want them to know the section number, I want them to know the provision, I want to know all the amendments, I want them to know the history of the bill, I want to know the legislative history of the bill, I want to know the whole thing. Uh, Because when you leave me, information's power and somebody's going to ask about those issues. On the other hand, we can't be expert in all of the other issues. Um, And those coalitions can't be experts in all of the other uh, children's issues as well. Um, And you've
1: you must come by that naturally. I mean, we're going to talk about your background in a little bit, but you started in town as a legislative assistant working for Senator Bobby Kennedy, yep. right? So yep. you were there at the time when Elementary Secondary Education Act was being formulated in its original iteration Head Start. and Head Start was there, Higher Ed Act was coming it was a fascinating time to be doing National
0: Public Radio public broadcasting. Oh my gosh. A legacy.
1: But you shared with me an article that you had written for the Harvard Education Review a few years back, focusing on parental and public engagement. You called it critical to sustaining equity in public education. That, that it just sounds like a great way to say it all begins at home, but the community has to be engaged. Is that? It seems like that's a theme that you picked up from your former boss. Because and, and
0: the key is community. community. No question. There there you got, know. Right. Uh, you, you,
1: you mentioned something, you quoted him at one of the hearings, I believe it was for ESEA, where he said, children don't have a lobby to come to town to speak for themselves. Right. That sounds like it must have been motivation for what became a very successful career
0: here in And In fact, he, was, he never was afraid to piss off people because he's a senator of New York. And he said, you know, Westchester parents have all kind of power. But he said, the kids in South Bronx don't have any power at all. And. We have to make sure that they have a voice and build them into the uh, to the legislation. And as I told you, Lyndon said, my God, Bobby, I've got all the Southern segregationists on my tail already. I'll never be able to pass another requirement from the federal level. And so Kennedy said, we're going to, uh, we're, we're going to we're, we're reach an agreement. We'll pass the bill. I'll vote for it. And he was on the Education Committee at the time. Sure. But he said, next year, what we'll do is uh, I want your help in passing an amendment that assures that parents who have no voice really need the community they, 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 they don't know even how to deal with in many cases the school, the school system, the superintendent, the teachers let alone the state or the federal level and what he did was he was the progenitor of putting together a group called uh, the Title I Parents Coalition and it was an interesting role for a senator because he was not only interested in legislating But here you have a senator that said, I'm going to lead this coalition. We're going to put together a poor parents' coalition. The problem with it was he didn't get any votes. He didn't care about votes. He he just, he cared about the principle of the thing. And where all of that came from, those of us who are still around that were for Bobby Kennedy or for Lyndon Johnson, we haven't the slightest idea. Hmm. But it's a rare commodity today. No doubt about that.
1: Just two friends having a lighthearted conversation about history, pop culture, and the context of current events. Listen to History Teachers Talking podcast from Evergreen Network anywhere you get your podcast. So, how did you get started with him?
0: Well, it was uh, actually I, I uh, was a student with the uh, Washington Semester program. It still exists. But at that time, it was a joint project of George Washington University and um, uh, an American University. And what they they, they did is brought in students from small colleges around the country. And at that time, I was an undergrad at Oberlin College, which is located in Ohio. But they brought in about 90 students. And we spent a semester uh, very similar to what I envision LBJ Center does with the students when they bring them in. And so we were. Uh, 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 and they had professors that had networks in the district. So we met with Abe, people like Abe Fortas, who was not on the Supreme Court yet, who now is a law firm of Fortas and Porter. They, uh, we had uh, we had discussions with Walter Heller. We got in the White We got on the Hill, uh, both Republican and Democrat. And it would just so happen that I uh, landed a internship with uh, Senator Philip Hart, which was an amazing internship experience, but my Irish, uh, my Irish parents and my Irish, my father was a union organizer, so we, so we talked politics a lot. Uh, a position opened up with Bobby Kennedy's staff, non-paid, uh, and at the time this was 1960. Uh, actually, it, he was at OJJDP, which is uh, he was his last year at as the uh, attorney general. And uh, those were the years when John Kennedy said, we want programs for, you called them delinquents. We're going to lock up adults, like Jimmy Hoff, and we're going to take care of the kids. Rather than lock up the kids, mm-hmm. and we'll let the adults go, right? Uh, that was a unique experience, right? right. Sure. And from there, uh, we joined the senatorial campaign, and then uh, worked on uh, Robert, Kennedy's, uh, Robert Kennedy's staff. Uh, paid a little amount of money. There were only about 2,000 staff people on both the House and Senate side at that time, and now I think we're looking at 12 or 13,000 staff people on both the Senate and the and the House side. They had very few staff people, so they had to rely on a lot of interns and a lot of pro bono. and uh, And then we went into the uh, then we went into the campaign, and uh, so we learned a lot about uh, really learned a lot about policy. and Kennedy was tough. He was uh, he was really tough to work with, but. Um, I'll tell you a little story. Uh, the Teamsters building is, as you know, about four blocks from the SOB, it was the Senate Office, the Senate Office building, right? Now it's the Russell Office building. Um, two o'clock in the morning, in his old Dodge convertible, we're, I'm going back to my group housing in Georgetown. So he, but he goes past the Teamsters office, and Jimmy Hoffa's light is still on. So the, the brakes squeal. We turn around and we work for two more hours uh, or and then one time we went into his office in the morning and he said I want to go to ba- I want to go to Bakersfield cut a ticket and he said well you know you don't represent California well but I want to go well why well I gotta see Caesar Chavez he said it's it's my people it's my people and so I'm going as a as a young kid thinking well, his people are sort of Nelson Rockefeller and a lot of the a lot of the Boston Brahmins, and it it wasn't his people. His people were uh, the great pickers in California, and he went to join the great pickers in California, and they were they were marching over the last oh. the couple of days, and so he we went. So it's uh so those were experiences that you remember, and you carry with you actually. You you carry those sort of values with you as you build your own organization. Oh, it had again. to be formative absolutely did but you pivoted away from politics for a while you became a journalist I did and the way that occurred was uh, after the assassination we were all disenchanted after the assassinations mm-hmm. and those the 60s was really a violent time assassination of assassination John Kennedy we really we, we, we killed our leaders right. you know, Martin Luther King uh, Robert Kennedy uh, a lot of the civil rights workers that were in the south and uh, I was a writer and I really enjoyed writing, which I absolutely require all of my staff to be good writers even though they're they talk in 140 characters <laughs> and they write in 140 characters and I got a national newspaper scholarship to spend two years in Vietnam as you know Robert Kennedy at the end, he support he opposed Linden yeah. uh, which created a lot of animosity uh, in, in, among the Democratic Party so uh, I had a chance to go to Vietnam and. Uh, Report uh, stories for the AP and the Chicago Sun-Times. How long were uh, you there? And I was there. I was there for two years. Wow! And uh, in the middle of all that, did Peace Corps training at the East-West Center at the Uni- University of Hawaii, and uh, became really enchanted with Vietnam. And I still continue to do education. Uh, uh, maybe a third of our work is international work now, okay. and Vietnam is one of the countries that is. Um, not only developing but it is probably going to be a middle-class country within the next five to ten years even though it's led by communists they like to be rich communists and they are market-based communists and uh, Saigon really does look like a little Singapore mm-hmm. but education uh, public education and public health is what they're building their country around and they figure that if they get those two right then the economic piece will fall into place as well right. and it is and it is And then. You come by
1: your interest and in experience in education naturally. You were a teacher. You were a school administrator. Was that going to be the end all? Is that what you want to do the rest of your life? Was it be well, I, t- I graduated, education at the front line?
0: Totally. I graduated in urban education, at a time that urban education degrees were, uh, were prevalent. Uh, there were a lot of colleges and universities that were providing urban planning and urban education degrees. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, you know, uh, we uh, at that time urban uh, planning meant a building a highway through the middle of a, okay. of a ghetto Certainly. Uh, or building projects that are 48 stories high and, and sort of uh, but uh, I but my uh, but I was focused primarily on education uh, it was where uh, and kids and I think a lot of that came from I think I go back to Robert Kennedy, but one of the things uh, he, one of the things we learned is that he never ever was capable of giving a domestic speech without mentioning kids in the first two minutes. Mm. It's always the students, always, now that was a different generation, except that I'm thinking as, as I'm thinking through that experience. Why is it that we're listening to debates, presidential debates, and there's hardly any question asked about kids or public education? Right. Uh, and it bothers me. It's, it's a bothersome question. It's part of your psyche, and it, it's what drives my organization, but it is also what drives your values around public education and teaching. And uh, my- What do you what
1: do you think that is? Why is it not part of the debate dialogue right now? Is, are they are the candidates trying to steer away from a fear or perception of too
0: much federalism? What, what? You know, I or I, are there just
1: too many other topics to fill the space right now?
0: Uh, I, I think that I, I think that polling plays a, a huge role, and uh, my communication and, and and my my millennial communications person said, you know, polling is really obsolete. What is What is in now is opinions.
1: Mm -hmm. And what's trendy.
0: And and what's trendy. And I think that's what education just isn't a vote-getter. It it doesn't blow anybody's mind. It does for parents, and it does for young people. But I think that also education has become really a messy topic. My, My theory around politics now for many offices is they would like to find the path of least resistance. Sure. I get that. So you don't tackle the hard issue, the hard issue of equity, the hard issue of wealth distribution, the, uh, the, the hard issue of segregation, uh, the hard issue of poverty, the, the hard, they just don't tackle those issues.
1: Yeah. You spend nearly a decade in education on the front line, but then like so many of us who get to the Potomac River in our blood, you come back to Washington. You yep. couldn't stay away. Really? Yep. You get involved yep. in education association work yep. with a very lengthy span of time as director of government relations at the PTA. Right. Tell me about how you accomplished your the, the PTA mission in that role given that where the state of public education was at the start of the 80s.
0: I started with the national PTA in the late 79, 80, Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. What was happening in the 70s is that education organizations discovered lobbying. Um, And higher ed discovered it before K-12 discovered it. And then K-12 discovered it uh, primarily through the unions. And it was in the late 60s, early 70s that Al Shanker, no, really man. broke off of the of cio developed the AFT, the UFT in New York, the NEA became stronger as a political organization. Uh, and following that were, and the missing voice was parents. So we had at AASA was superintendents, and, and secondary uh, and, second, and elementary school principals, represented the principals, the public relations people were represented, parents were not represented. Mm-hmm. And um, based on my career uh, that was that, you know, the best change happens at the bottom up, number one. Number two, there's a lot of people who don't have voices uh, at the federal level. And uh, so at that time, the PTA, very progressive leadership, decided that they would open up a governmental relations office in Washington. And that was the first year <coughs> that Ronald Reagan was president. and. Uh, it just so happened that Ronald Reagan, as you remember, that first year he came here, he cut the federal budget by fifty-six billion dollars in six months, yeah. and Tip O'Neill went along with it. Uh, but the Republicans at that time were also uh, interested in uh, family and the involvement of family in education. You know, the, the first teacher of our kids are our, our parents, right? And uh, and we choose not to have institutions raise our kids. We'd rather have families raise our kids. But the institutions have not restructured. Hmm. We're still factory model institutions. Yeah. And uh, when we really need much more individualization around kids who are, are on opioid, who need special care, who need before and after school care, who need summer school care, some uh, weekend tutorials, mm-hmm. and uh, who need nurses, who, who need uh, psychologists, and in many cases, schools uh, uh, starting in the 80s or mid-80s, we began cutting education budgets, and a lot of schools really cut all of those services.
1: So during that period, was it sounds like there was much more of a general appreciation and understanding among policymakers here in town about the value of public education. Was just that the budget situation was the biggest challenge, or did you also have to drag some key people into this discussion unwillingly?
0: I, you know, the first piece of that question is uh, they're both legitimate questions. And uh, when, when we set up hearings, and uh, you know, one of the policy objectives, uh, not so much anymore because nobody's holding hearings, right? Nobody's. Right. But in those days, they really held oversight hearings, and they, everyone on the Hill, whether Republican or Democrat, wanted a parent to testify. Um, And they were very complimentary to parents. Because in many cases, they were parents themselves. That's changed. And now it's not unusual for committee staff to yell at parents, Mm -hmm. to yell at kids when they come in, uh, to challenge uh, students when they come in. Uh, So it's the discourse and the, the coarsening of the civic discussion that has sort of infiltrated almost every part of not just public education, but anything that's, you know, the name of, the reason we did public advocacy for kids is we really believed that the public had a responsibility for our young people. And uh, that's changed, that's changed. We didn't talk about this, but when we started the organization, I really wanted to be the Newt Gingrich of public education. I really thought that it wasn't a bad idea that we could cut people off at of the knees for public education or our kids. We, we couldn't do that for the kids and our teachers and our higher education. Then it really wasn't worth it to do it in any other places as well. Now, we were going to do it nicely, yeah. but at the same time, uh, uh, we, we, we really needed uh, we really And this is, I think, really tough. is In order to counter hardball, yeah. you really need to play hardball.
1: You've mentioned millennials and young people a number of times, and I'm seeing this through my own direct interaction with the younger generation. Do you find it a challenge at all that they come to town with a passion for a topic, an issue, they want to change the world? Do you have to educate them on the value of political action to get that accomplished?
0: Uh, Yes. Uh, One of our objectives is to serve as a pipeline uh, for students who want to go into public policy. But one of the things that we emphasize is that you can't graduate with an MA in policy and at the age of 25 go to an office and develop policy for professionals, whether it's the medical profession, the legal profession, or the military profession, you can't develop policy without having experience uh, in the, the field, exactly. including I'm working on the hill. I'm finding that fewer and fewer students really want to work on the hill. I'm, I'm finding that to put, too. Are you finding that too? Yeah. And in the past, they couldn't wait to work on the hill. Right. They couldn't wait to work on the hill. It's not an internship. Many of these are low paid. You know. And my and you know, when they're an intern or when they're a first uh, when they're an entry level with me. They they shadow me in all of the offices. Uh, we go to Republican offices. We we probably cover during the uh, during a semester their semester maybe 150 to 200 offices, both Senate offices, House offices. Mm-hmm. We keep profiles of each one of the offices. What we talked about, who the who the staff person was. Now you've got to remember who the staff people are because they may be the Secretary of Education or Secretary of State, and you have to build relationships and. It's. I'm, I'm finding that that is not. It's harder than ever before to get them to go back to that kind of preparation. And, and student engagement is a is a major piece of our mission statement. Okay. Sure. So my kids are coming in and, and with all kinds of IT skills. And my social media person, for instance, plays a, a huge role. And uh, in, in the past, we go to a hearing, and uh, it would take six weeks to. Uh, send information to the field, uh, give them information on who voted for what amendment, who voted for what bill. Now we're sitting in the hearing room, or we're sitting at C-SPAN watching it from our television set, and we're immediately phoning and uh, and putting stuff on the on, on the social media that goes out to our listserv. Yeah. Uh, so what has really happened is we've shortened the time frame, and, and, and part of uh, part of the lobbying and, and, the, and, you know, advocacy is different than policy.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, as you know, so I've, I've got a lot of my staff who would like to work in the policy area, but not so many. And, and I have a feel that with the campaign, this is changing, because I'm, I'm seeing more and more students that are participating in campaigns, in local offices and canvassing and knocking. The old knocking on door thing mm-hmm. is back again. So I'm, I'm seeing that at, uh, in a... I'm seeing that in a larger capacity than I have in the past, but they still sort of would rather. They're doing a lot of work at the local level. They're doing a lot of volunteer work at the local level, working right. at a lot of nonprofits at the local level. Could be the Boys and Girls Club, could be the United Way, could be the homeless shelter, could be the feeding shelter. But that's in many cases where they're gravitating to. Yep. On one hand, it's difficult to get kids into the sort of the political arena and through the different hoops and phases that they have to experience. On the other hand, you have kids like Parkland who have thought this thing through, but primarily because they've experienced it. Absolutely. Uh, but then I take a look at my own career and uh, if you know, if there was anything about my own career, it was not what we knew, but who we knew. And the mentors along the way, when I worked for the Sun-Times, it was a guy named Bill Malden, who was a cartoonist and took me under his wing, and Robert Kennedy took us under his wing. And, and John Chafe, and it was all uh, a lot of civil rights workers took us under their wings. And we learned, but we had mentors along the way. Uh, now the kids are sort of doing this on their own and they're making some mistakes along the way, but maybe that's a good idea. Well now you can steer them towards this episode of Eddie Proof Politics. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait.
1: What a great place to wrap up, Arnie. I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here on 80 Proof Politics. It's been a true pleasure having you, and I wish you all the success in the world going forward. I
0: I admire, I admire all the work you do, and especially the, the the, you know moving into the podcast. And uh, it's just been a pleasure to be with you. Cheers to that. Cheers.
1: And just remember, no matter what you think about the state of politics in Washington these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty. There's plenty of room to fill your
0: drink. Well, this is absolutely true.
1: <laughs> Hello, this is Gary Chachot, welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that.